Psalm 84. Christmas is gone, but we're going to continue looking at some selected psalms as we kick off the, the new year. And we, we finished our Christmas singing by, by learning a, a song about the city of Zion in Psalm 87. We called it Heaven's Theme Song. It was a song about God's love for Jerusalem because it was the one place on earth where, where he chose that his presence would, would dwell. And it was where the temple was at. God's presence and God's people were, were centered in that, that unique place. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, this random question or not, but, but if you could choose one job in the temple... What would it be? If you were able to work in God's house, as, as it's called, what, what would you want to do? You want to be one of the, the choir directors that led the people of God in song? I mean, can you imagine singing a cantata in Jerusalem in the temple, those of you who like to, to sing? Maybe you'd prefer to be a Levite who tended to the altar of incense. Can, can you think about how good you would smell all of the time? Your hair and your beard, and that would come in quite handy, especially in time when, before time of, of deodorant, right? Maybe you'd want to be the high priest. So you could go into the holies of holies. You'd be the only one. Go into the very place where the presence of God was, was located. Would the job of the temple custodian ever come to your mind as a coveted position? Well, did you know that Psalm 84 says that's one of the best things to be in the temple? In fact, it says that the custodians of the temple are blessed by God. Psalm 84 is probably familiar to you. It's all about the blessing of God's house and and like before, we'll see that, that the Psalms are written in the Old Testament and many are fulfilled in, in the New. And I want you to notice the title of this Psalm because it, it really sets the context for us. It says in the, the heading of Psalm 84, For the choir director, on the Gittith, a Psalm of the sons of, of Korah. Now that might not mean much to you unless you understand the, the role of the, the, the Korahites, uh, and their speckled past. The sons of Korah are the surviving line of the Kohites who, who followed Korah, the man named Korah, in rebellion against Moses and, and Aaron, along with Dathan and Abiram. And these men, the, the Kohites, were, were given the task to transport all the sacred items of the, of the tabernacle from place to place whenever it moved. I mean, tear down, set up, and they were the, they were the ones that, that, that toted all of that and, and cared for all of it. And, and they didn't like the job that, that God had given them. And so they challenged Moses and Aaron for their job. They thought Moses and Aaron had a, had a, better, a better role in the, in the tabernacle. And you might recall this story in number 16, that after they challenged Moses, Moses sets up a challenge Himself, and that challenge ended with God opening up the earth and swallowing all 250 of them because of their rebellion against the Lord. And while Korah died, 
his sons that didn't participate became the future caretakers of the temple. Listen to or look at, I should say, 1 Chronicles 9.19. Shalom, the, the son of Korah, the, the son of Abiasaph, the, the son of Korah and his kinsmen of his father's house. And the Korites the, were in charge of the work of the service, keepers of the threshold of the tent. As their fathers had been in charge of the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance of the doorkeepers. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's a fancy word for the custodians of the temple. James Montgomery Boyce titled his sermon on Psalm 84, a psalm, uh, the Psalm of the Janitors. And we heard a song from, from Asaph in, in Psalms 74, they were the choir leaders, they were the singers of the temple, they were responsible for the, for the music of the temple. Of course, you know the job of the Levites, they were the priests, they performed the sacrifices and managed the priestly functions of the temple. But the songs of Korah were the keepers and the porters, they, they emptied the ashes, they carried out the pans, they cleaned the temple, they were the, they were the doorkeepers. And so this is a song written to be sung by the custodians of the temple. You should never belittle that profession ever again after reading this psalm. Boyce said that God cares so much about His worship that He even gives instructions to the janitors. Now, I don't know what, what your interaction has been with, with custodians, but you don't normally think of a singing janitor, do you? I mean, they might whistle while they work but they don't typically passionately write songs and sing about the place that they clean and work, unless you're Randy Ellis. I mean, all the halls of TCS, how majestic and how grand, I told him at the 8.30 service. What kind of song would a custodian of the temple sing? Well, the same kind of song that you and I should sing. And out of all of those temple workers I named, the the priests high and low, the choir leaders and the singers, major and minor, I would rather be one of the janitors after singing this psalm. I associate with them more than, than the rest. And as we look at this song and sing it together, I think you'll agree that, that you do too. Now, our goal hasn't changed, even though we're out of songs of Christmas. We're still in the the, the song genre, so... Our goal is to learn the meaning of of the lyrics so we get it. We need to understand what we're singing. To teach you the tune of the song so you can feel it. Is this praise? What is this? And then inspire you to want to sing it. Psalm 84 is a song about longing for God's house where His presence dwells and His people gather. And and the song has a distinct flow. It travels like like the people in it. Uh, One noted it moves from outside of God's house to inside It moves from the countryside of Jerusalem to to the temple, and then it moves from daily spaces to a a sacred place. And that movement, I'll show it to you, you, it can be be seen by paying attention to to the word uh, blessed or blessed. It's used three times in in this psalm. Look, look if you would, at verse 4. Here's the first time. How blessed are those who dwell... In your, in your house. And so there's blessing of dwelling in God's house in verses 1 through 4. So it's all about being in the temple, the first, first part of the psalm. 
Then in verse 5, here's the second one. Look at verse 5. Blessed is the man whose strength is, is in you. And he goes on to talk about uh, he's passing through a, a valley, and then he uh, appears before the Lord in verse 7. So this section is all about traveling to the temple, verses 5 through 8. And then finally he gets there in verse 12. Oh, Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. So verses 9 through 12 is all about arriving at the temple and offering prayer and then, and then praise. Those serving in the temple, those on pilgrimage to the temple, and then those who arrive at the temple. And, and no other psalm contains three beatitudes or promised blessings. Promises a blessing to those who desire to gather, those who depend on God when they're not gathered, and then those who are devoted to God all the time. So we'll, we'll call this three promised blessings related to, to God's house. There's a promised blessing to those who long to gather, they're blessed, verses 1 through 4. Those who look to God whenever they're not, and, uh, they're blessed, in verses 5 through 8. And those who love God at all times, they're blessed, in verses 9 through, through 12. Let's, let's look at the first one, if you will. Blessing is promised to those who long to gather in God's presence. Look, if you would, at verse 1. It says, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of, of hosts. Now he begins this song. The song talks about the blessing of being in God's house, which is the temple in Jerusalem. In particular, when God's peace, uh, people are gathered. The word lovely means beloved. It's not talking about how the temple looks. It's not talking about how attractive the, the temple is, but... But his affection for it, it's a beloved place. A good translation would be, the place of appointed worship of the true God has all of my affections. Or it's impossible to express the affection I have for your dwelling place, O Lord. That's the, that's the idea. And the temple had many rooms uh, or sections, which is why it's plural. And you might think of what Jesus said in John 14, when he says... Uh, in my Father's house are many mansions or, or many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. These were connected apartments to the Father's house, and families uh, lived together in multi-generational flats. Well, the temple had not just one room, but, but many rooms, and they're all connected. But the reason that he loves God's dwelling place is not because of the building, but because of God's presence. Notice what it says, how lovely or beloved are your dwelling places. And meaning God's presence inhabits all of them, not just, not just the holies of holies, but, but all of the, the, the places. Now the psalmist knows that God is, is omnipresent. I mean, he knows his Old Testament theology. So God is not just in this one location, but, but he also knows that God has chosen the temple as the special place where his specific presence would, would dwell. And so that's lovely to him. It's a beloved location. Deuteronomy 12, verses 10 through 12, tells us about this. When you cross the Jordan and lived, uh, live in the land which, which the Lord your God is giving you, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell, there... You shall bring that I command you, 
your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contributions of your hand. And you shall rejoice there before the Lord, your God, you and your sons and your daughters. Not just you, you'll bring your family. Is that how you feel about church? Do you love being here? Is it beloved to you? I mean, you think about Sunday morning and Sunday night. Do you think, oh, how wonderful are your dwelling places, oh Lord? I mean, I love it here. I can't wait to get back every time that, that I leave. If you don't, you may need this, this song more than you realized this morning, especially as we, we start a new year. And you say... Does anyone really feel that way, or is that just, you know, kind of an over-spiritualization of a, you know, of a, of, of a song? Well, well, here's a group that, that, that does feel that way. And remember, these are the custodians of the temple. These aren't the, the highfalutin uh, muckety-mucks, as they say. This is not the high priest. This is the janitor that feels that way. Here's a whole group of people. Their task, when they come, is to clean up after everyone else's worship, but they don't care. As long as they get to be where God is and where His people gather. You can know how you truly feel about church by what you do when you don't have to come. Um, not only is church essential, but, but it's a Christian's joy. I mean, if you go to the grocery store and Chick-fil-A and the shopping mall, but, but you don't come to church, that says more about your heart than, than you may realize. And you say, well, I have to eat. And you're right, you do, both spiritually and physically. Can I just be painfully blunt with you? If you don't want to be in church, the problem is you, not church. I'm not trying to beat you up. I felt the same coldness. I've been out at times. I'm trying to help you because it's amazing the glaring inconsistencies that we can have in our lives and not even realize it. What's very abnormal can become normal, like, like saying we're too busy to come to church or our lives are too hectic when we cram everything else in our life and we're not too busy for, for those things. And does that mean that you have to love every, psalm, uh, every song or every sermon? I mean, believe me, the answer to that is no, I have to listen to myself. I mean, I feel very much like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones when he said he wouldn't walk across the, his bedroom hall to listen to him preach, much less go all the way down to Westminster Chapel to do it. But someone who loves being here overlooks those things because they're just happy to be with God and gathered with, with His people. And you can see that by, by, by all of the verbs and descriptions that this man really feels this way. They all can convey passion. Look at you at verse 2. My soul longed, even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. So verse 1, how beloved and... Verse 2, he longs, he yearns, my heart and my flesh sing. That means my, my whole nature longs for, for communion with, with God. This word longing was used for the, the greed of a lion, for his prey. You ever watch National Geographic and a, and a bunch of lions take down a wildebeest and they have to fight off the hyenas and, and one is there. I mean, how greedy he is. This is what we want to share even with the fellow lions. I mean, that's the idea, this longing. It's lasting. It's an earnest desire. It's one of the reasons that people think that David is the author of this psalm, even though his name is not listed. Because when David had to flee from Absalom and he couldn't go to the temple, he longed to be there with everything in him. And notice, it's, 
He says it's the living God. Verse 2, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And again, just like in verse 1, how dwelling are your, uh, how lovely are your dwelling places. Now he's singing to the living God. He's, a, he's real, he's alive, he's present. Without him, there's nothing here. Without his presence, everything else is just religious motion. It's an empty box. It's a wallet without money. It's a, it's a wrapper without gum. Um, church without, without the presence of Christ is, is just a bunch of religious nonsense. Your attempt to manipulate God in, in some way. But meeting with God, the living God, is the reason that we, that we gather. Fellowship with Him is the, is the goal. And the writer is a person who truly yearns to come to God's house and to gather uh, with, with his people. Now, unlike a lot of you, I have the, the blessing of being able to come here every day. Uh, not to this very building, but, but to the church campus. Um, I get to be in God's house all the time. It's nothing like Sunday whenever all of you are here. I mean, when the people of God are gathered and they sing, it's electric. I mean, to hear you singing and, and hear the word, the blessing is immense. And many of you know what I mean. You, you, you felt it in your own heart. You've been away and you've come back and you, you said, wow, just drink it in. But sadly, someone I read this past week said fewer and fewer people want to worship God whenever they come to church. And so churches are finding other things for them to do. Now let that sink in for a minute. Churches are finding other things for people to do when they come to church other than worship God. It's true. Tell people if you come to church, all that's going to be there is preaching, meaning the Bible explained, and you'll get a number of people who won't come. Tell people that the only focus when we gather is the Lord, and we're going to concentrate on Him, and people will say, okay, and what else are we going to do? And so churches find, for other, find other things for people to do that, that hold their attention. But the problem is not activity. The problem is appetite. That's what the, the psalmist is saying here. And when you try to create substitutes, it, it, does, it does the opposite of what, of what they hope for, of figuring out something to draw people in in order that they might get the appetite. Finding something other than God to attract people does nothing but deaden the appetites further. Only God can can enliven the soul. I mean, the very thing that will truly attract people who have no appetite for the Lord is to be in the midst of genuine people who do have an appetite for for the Lord. I mean, coming to the place of worship where there's real worship and real hunger for God can cause even the driest heart to get moist. And the psalmist longs to gather so much that he envies birds who can be at the temple all the time. Look, if you would, at verse 3. The bird has also found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord God of hosts, my King and my God. He says, I want to be one of those birds. They never have to leave. The temple had a, an open court and birds would come and, and build their nests in certain places. And he says, they're so blessed. They don't have to go back to Galilee. They don't even have to leave. They, they, they can live here. Look if you would at verse 4. How blessed are those, or how blessed are those who dwell 
in your house. And here's the, the point of the first four verses. All oh, the blessedness of those who, who gather with God and His people to, to praise Him. Lumber said, even the visitors of the sanctuary may be blessed, but it's those who dwell there, those with constant presence, that are sure of great and numerous mercies. Now, the Bible says there are massive blessings from regular and consistent attendance at God's house. And there are many. First of all, you're pleasing to God whenever you, whenever you gather, when you come to church. I mean, you know, the Bible says, as mind-blowing as it is, that God seeks worshipers. The song that we sang, the children's song, it flips. Did you notice that? When I'm lost, I don't come to God, God comes to me. John 4, 23, Jesus said, But the time is coming, even now is arrived, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers pleasing to God whenever you gather. You're also provided for by God whenever you, whenever you come to church. You're fed His Word. I understand you can meet with God in the tree stand or driving down the road or whatever else, but God's proclaimed Word when His people gather, it's unique. You have to have it. Matthew 4, 4 says, Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the place that you will hear God's voice is here. It's not in your head. It's when His Word is exposited. That's how God speaks, through His Word. You're also protected. Blessing is you're protected from sin and Satan. I mean, gather and guard your soul through other brothers and sisters in the Bible, and, and you won't be out of church long before you start sliding. There's no neutral on the spiritual gear shift. It's forward or reverse. You're also provoked, finally, to, to love and good works. and You could add to this list when you come to church. I mean, coming to church keeps you from, from, from wrong, but it also motivates you to do right. And, and you, see, you see others doing things. It, 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 motivates the, it motivates you, and those who receive these will be sustained by God even whenever they can't gather. Look at the second blessing that's promised here. Beginning in verse 5, there's a, a blessing promised to those who look to God when they aren't gathered. Look at you at verse 5. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. They look to God. Those who look to God are blessed. They look in dependence. So you get the word strength. Blessed is the man whose strength is in God. And they look daily to the idea of in whose heart are the highways, the well-worn path to Zion. Now, this section is all about a pilgrim's journey to the temple. I mean, you can see the movement. Uh, he passes through the, the valley of Baca in verse 6, and he arrives before God in verse 7. He appears before God in Zion. So verses 1 through 4 is all about a longing for God's house. Verse 5 through 8 says, If I can't be at Zion, then I'll walk with God while I'm headed there. That's the idea. The word for strength is often used with the words uh, like refuge or, or, or tower, as in protection. And so it's all about looking to God when you're not in the temple on this, on this, this pilgrim's travel. 
And notice it clarifies in follow-up in verse 5, in whose heart are the, the highways of them. And, and so that's the idea of daily life. It's uh, the highways of the heart. Uh, they rejoice in, in all the ways that lead to God, and they, 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 they walk before Him, even in their heart, even when things seem dangerous. Look at you at verse 6. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with with blessings. Those who left their their homes three times a year to come to worship needed strength uh, for for their journey there, and they also needed security. I mean, you imagine leaving Galilee, leaving everything behind. They had to trust God with their homes and their crops and their possessions in order to to travel to, to the temple. And so they trusted God on, on their journey. And that journey held many dangers. The Valley of Baca, it's an unknown place. We have no idea where this is. But the word Baca means weeping or, or like a parched or dry ground. Look at verse 6 again. Notice the transition. Ba- passing through the valley of dryness or, or of, of, uh, you know, of, of weeping, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessing. They, being the man whose strength is in God and in whose heart, whose daily walk is the highways to, you know, to Zion. When they're passing through uh, times of weeping or, or dry times, even there, relying on God. And look, it, looking to Him makes, it, makes a dry land like a watered place. That's the idea here. Now, our tendency is to withdraw from God when things are hard, isn't it? And the psalmist says we must press into God. I mean, listen, whenever you get dry and, you know, or, you, or you struggle, the last thing that you may want to do is to pray or pick up your Bible or go to church. I've been there. You know that's what you need to do, but it's the last thing that you desire to do. But that's where the water is. And that's where you'll turn the Valley of Baca into a spring. My pastor used to say, whenever you don't want to come to church, come for sure. Because that's usually when God pours out His greatest blessing. And verse 7 says, it's God's kind providence that, that preserves you in those days. Look at verse 7. So he's blessed by looking to God for strength in his heart. He's walking with God even as he's passing through these, these dry valleys, these valleys of weeping, walking with God turns it into a spring, and they go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in, in Zion, from strength to strength. The New Testament says from faith to faith. It means faith from beginning to end. It, it means it's God's strength from beginning to end, from strength to strength. And that's what people who are daily walking with with the Lord experience. They have His personal presence and His personal provision. And we require fresh strength from from the Lord day to day. What did Paul say? Though our outward man perishes, our inward man is renewed day by day. And that comes from looking to the Lord for that strength. And notice there's an assurance that you'll make it to the end. You'll, You'll make it. At the end of verse 7, 
And every one of them appears before God in Zion. They'll appear before the Lord at the temple. This is the verbs in future tense. The traveler has not reached Zion yet, but he's assured that he'll get there by God himself, by God's strength. And so will you. You may grow weary in the Christian life. Maybe you're weary today. And if left to your own strength, you'll not make it. But God promises that in His strength, He'll complete the work that He began. Jesus promises not one of His sheep will be lost. And having that assurance gives you strength, doesn't it? Having the assurance that's not ultimately up to you, it's up to the Lord, that gives you strength. And that leads you to cry out for it in prayer. Look, if you would, at verse 8. O God of hosts... Hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of, of Jacob. Now think for a minute uh, what this middle section is all about in the, in the psalmist day. Think of the arduous task it was to, to leave your home, to leave Galilee and, and go to the temple. Think of the long journey and the length of time that, that you were gone. I mean, it took weeks to get there. And here they are in prayer, asking God to help them get there. And they didn't let the distance or earthly duty that they left behind or, or difficulty to dissuade them. Now think of how easily something gets in our way. Getting into comfortable cars and driving across town to come here on Sunday morning. In the olden days, Christians actually followed a process of preparation for Sunday service on Sunday nights. And that's not just something that, the, that your mother told you. I mean, Saturday night, Sunday morning begins on Saturday night. I mean, it was actually considered part of Sunday worship. In the olden days, you took a Saturday night bath. Hopefully you take more than that in these days. She took a Saturday night bath, and you put on your Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. You prepared. And one writer said, the, the psalm reminds us that we've lost the special nature of gathering before the Lord. And it reminds us that we should make effort to celebrate the time that we're able to spend in worship and praise with God's people in God's presence. There's blessing. For those who, who do that. Let me show you the third one. Third blessing is promised to those who love God all the time. Those who long to, to be in God's presence, those who travel there, and then those who love God all the time. And they, they love Him here in verses 9 through 12 with, with confident prayer, in willful praise, and they love Him over an extravagant promise. You would have verse 9. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointing, uh, anointed. Here's the movement again toward the final blessing. Verses 1 through, through 4, he longs to be there. Verses 5 through 8, he journeys toward it, and God sustains him. It's from, from beginning to end, from strength to strength. And in verse 9, he, he arrives, and when he arrives, he calls on God in prayer. In verse 8, 
He ends with prayer, strength to get there, and now he's come and he arrives and, he, and the first thing he does is he prays. He, he calls on God. He's come to, to visit God and so he speaks to the Lord whenever he arrives. And he starts with prayer and then that turns into praise. He prays for the king. He then offers praise for God's goodness. So he begins with an upward look to God. That's what he says. For behold our shield, O God. He look up, and then he asks God to look down. Look upon the face of your anointed. Look forward. Look now on the king, the Davidic king, what the anointed would have been. Look forward to, toward the Messiah. God's anointed was the, the Davidic king in particular, because the king was the one who kept the temple. He kept the temple open. He allowed for the pilgrimages to happen, so he's praying for those who who kept the temple open, allowed us to, to, you know, to gather. And the New Testament tells us that we're to pray for those who are in authority so we can peaceably gather. But there seems to be a more significant call here to look beyond David. The anointed one who would provide a greater temple, and that temple would be torn down, and that anointed one would, would rebuild it in three days who himself will be called our son and our shield. But until he comes, even today, until he comes, there's no place on earth that you can be closer to him than in God's courts, gathered with those who are called his people. Look at you at verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And here's the, the willful praise. I mean, he get, begins with longing to be in the temple, and now that longing has turned to praise. Verses 1 and 2, it's a longing. To, it's better to be elsewhere, uh, better than, than, than anywhere else. And now in verse 10, he's in God's courts and it's better than a thousand days outside. That's how you should feel when you come to church. But he goes further. Look at, look at verse 10 again. Here's the choice. I would rather stand at the threshold. Some of your translations may say the doorkeeper. I'd rather be the doorkeeper. Same idea. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God, and here's the other option, than dwell in the tents of wickedness. He's saying any place in God's house is better than a whole residence among the wicked. He's saying being humbled and close to God is better than being exalted and far away, no matter what you possess. The threshold means just outside the, just outside the door, even if he can't get in. He has to watch everyone else doing their thing. It's better than not being here at all. That's the idea. And remember who's singing the song. It's the custodians, right? The people who were descendants of a man who got tired of being the, the tabernacle mules, who wanted a better spot, and thought their task was beneath them. And Moses and Aaron, the priests, had a, had a better task. And now their descendant's song is, I don't care where I am or what I do, I just want to be close to God and close to His people. Isn't that beautiful? Grace does that to you. 
these sons of Korah survived. God didn't wipe them out. Grace does that to you. Gives you this kind of heart. I can remember like yesterday, my, my first night at Eagle Irie when I moved here for ministry. 20 years ago. We loaded up the truck and moved the family from West Virginia. And it really did look like the Beverly Hillbillies. I mean, there was a rider truck and I had a pickup truck with an open trailer and there was yard toys hanging over the sides and we pulled in. We didn't know anybody and they probably thought, what in the world is coming? And the day we arrived was one day before I started the, the midnight shift as a security guard, a maintenance man for 11 days straight. And I can still recall the look on Tracy's face as I walked out the door, leaving her with surrounded by boxes. Olivia and Nathan were six months old. They were, she had one on each hip, and Bailey was three, standing at her knee. It was 11.30 at night, and when I arrived at work, I had a note that said, clean up the dining hall. And it was to clean up from an eight to 900-person banquet. And it said, have it ready by 7 a.m. for breakfast. Those same eight, 900 people are coming back for breakfast in the morning. And absolutely nothing had been done. Plates were on the table with food on them and salad dressing, you know, and those little, boat, those little boats that, that, that you pour were, were everywhere. I didn't even know where the dishwasher was, much less how to, how to turn it on. I mean, it was absolute chaos. I mean, I've never been on campus before other than one time whenever I came and interviewed for the job. And I'm alone. Nobody else is there. There's one guy who's there who gave me the keys and then, and then he left. And I can distinctly remember it was somewhere in the middle of the night. I don't remember the exact time. With a large industrial trash can in front of me slopping French dressing from somebody's half-eaten food into the can, that this thought came to me. You left the business world for this? You left making piles of money with purpose and excitement for this? And $6 an hour? To clean up after people that you don't even know? In the middle of the night? No less? with your fingers greasy from French dressing? And as that temptation flooded my mind, the answer that came from my heart was, was yes. For Jesus, I would do anything. I'd lick these plates if he asked me to. And the tears began to flow, and the, the joy unspeakable followed, and I spent the rest of the night rejoicing in the Lord, singing this custodian song, if you will. That's the only temptation I can remember to go back and forsake God's path the first night. Now, why do I share that with you? Because you will face one or many choices like that in your life. Where you'll have to choose, is it better to be at the threshold of God's house, even in a lowly position, or exalted in an easy place with what the world offers. And there's an assumed choice built in here to this, to this psalmist. And if you could choose, and you can, which will you in those moments? 
And if in that moment you truly understand who you are, a traitor, sinner who deserves hell, and you remember what Jesus has truly done for you, He saved you, He made you a joint heir, then the choice will be clear. There's nothing that you wouldn't do for Him. There's nothing beneath you. There's nothing too dangerous, too hard, too long, too far, too anything. Because He's with you. That's what the psalmist is saying. One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Even the shortest period of time where God is present trumps the longest period anywhere else, even if it's in earthly pleasure because of who He is and what He's promised. Look at this God that you serve in verse 11. Look at verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord is our sun and our shield. I didn't lose anything following the Lord. I gained everything in following the Lord. He's our sustainer and our protector. That's what it means, sun and shield. Just like the natural sun is the life and light and joy of all times, so God Himself is the is the light of those who dwell in His house. And, and He's a giver, not a taker. He gives grace and, and glory. And verse 11 says, No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Is your God stingy? The God of the Bible is a giver. That's why He loves cheerful ones. You're acting just like Him when you do that. I think James chapter 1, you can go to plenty of places in the Bible. John 3, 16, for God so loved the word that He gave. But I actually think that James, as odd as it might sound, is one of the clearest practical pictures of God's giving heart and how He does it, probably in, in all of the New Testament. You might argue with me, and that's fine. But let me show you why I would say that. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And James says that we should ask God for what we need because he is a God who gives. In this case, it's wisdom, but it applies across the board. The Greek literally says, let him ask the giving God. He, he, he pulls the, the adjective up front and puts it in front of God to, to, to help us understand what God's like. He's a giving God. What a wonderful way to describe the, the Lord. And He's not just a, a giver, but a generous one. Look, it says, let him ask God who gives, or the giving God. And this is how he gives. He gives generously. And he gives without strings attached. To all without reproach. The word reproach means like a reprimand. It means to, to scold. He gives without scolding. Everywhere in the Bible, it, it, it's like a rebuke. He gives without rebuke. And that's what some of you expect whenever you come to God for help, isn't it? You expect a rebuke. You expect help because he's God. He's love. He's a good God. But you also expect a rebuke whenever you come to this good God. Help, yes, but rebuke first. Like, like he's going to say, all right, I'll give you what you need, but first let me show you how you failed me so you don't do this again. But that's not what James 1.5 says. Or, 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 or 
why didn't you come to me sooner? But I'll give it to you anyway. James and the psalmist says he'll not respond that way. What will God do when you come to him for something that, that, that you need? He says he'll give to all men what they need immediately, generously, without rebuke, without reluctance or reservation. He will not withhold any good thing from his children. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And when you come to God in need, He's not trying to qualify your request like some government agency to see if you qualify uh, for the answer. You already, you already did qualify by coming to Him. That's the qualification. Turn to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God in Him are yes, and in Him amen to the glory of God through us. And why wouldn't you want to be near that kind of God? both now and all eternity. Notice it says the Lord gives grace and glory. So the psalmist rejoices in the assurance that we'll we'll experience the glory of God one day. He gives grace and He gives glory, which will literally be in His presence. Look how He ends in verse 12. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you this kind of God. Boy, the custodians have a wonderful song to sing, don't they? There's three promised blessings to those of us who sing it. There's blessing to those who dwell in God's courts in verses 1 through 4. You're blessed when you journey there. And you're blessed if you trust in, in the Lord. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, saying, yeah, this is the Old Testament. This is a song about the temple, and you keep talking about church. What gives you the contextual right to do that? Remember, these are written in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New. So I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians 3. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3, and we'll close here quickly. 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 16, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Look at what he says. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you, you all, are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. The temple of God is holy. And that is what you all are. It's the one place in the New Testament where it says that there is a special, specific dwelling of God in the church. That's what this is talking about. Now, I understand. The Bible says that you, as an individual, your body is the temple of God. But here, this is in the plural. Do you not know that you all are the temple of God? And in the New Testament, the distinct, unique place where God's distinct, special presence gathers is when all of those individual temples come together in the one temple that's on Sunday in the church. And while these blessings are promised to those who gather at the temple in the Old Testament, the New Testament says the special place has changed to the church and the gathering of God's people is 
is in this local assembly. That's where his unique and special presence dwells. Let's put a New Testament spin on this, these three blessings. Blessed are those who gather for church, in verses 1 through 4. Blessed are those who look to God in between Sundays. And blessed are those who make Jesus their all and all, trust in Him, in verses 9 through 12. The church is where you want to be. It's where God is, and it's where His people are at. And so you did a wonderful thing by choosing to be here the first Sunday in 2021. Two bow your heads. Father, I come before you and I thank you. I learned so much in study of this psalm. You did my heart good. As I'm sitting here preaching it, I can imagine what it sounds like to, to, my, to me if I was unsaved, when I was unsaved at, at 24. It sounds like a blessing by coming to church and, and those kinds of things. And I would just imagine thinking, well, I, I don't have the desire to, to, to do that. It's because uh, I would have needed a new affection. I'm not going to get that through activity by, by coming. You have to give a person a new heart. The Bible says you must be born again. God must give you a new nature, and with that new nature, new desires. And from those new desires, it's a new want to. And so I just pray for anybody here this morning that may struggle to relate to, to this psalm because they don't have new affections. They've never come to Christ. I, I pray that, that today they would say yes to, to you. They would repent of their sins. They would, they would put their faith in Christ alone. They would say, Lord, I, I am nothing. I, I'm, I'm worse than a custodian. Uh, I'm not even worthy to be in here. I've sinned, but... But you've promised, you said, if sinners will come to you, you'll, you'll wash their sins away. They'll ask you for forgiveness. You'll grant it because of what you've done in your son on the cross. I pray for them. I pray for any believer, any Christian here this morning, Lord, that, that may be in the valley of Baca, they, they may be, be dry, weary, and even as they listen to this, the, the, the juices aren't flowing yet. I pray that they'll turn to you and the places that you have given wells, even when their flesh may not desire, and that as they do, then, then the water will begin to flow and will refresh them. Thank you, Lord, for your word and your truth. Thank you for this church. May you bless it um, as we serve you this year. In Jesus' name, amen.